happen is this. We are in the midst of our 100-year anniversary at the church. We have been in ministry here, um, not here in this room, but at this church, as this part of the body of Christ, for 100 years. In September of 1909, um, there were a group of families that got together. They had been going to Travis Park United Methodist Church, which is downtown. You might know that it is downtown, Travis Park United Methodist. And there was a trolley car that used to run up and down Broadway. How many of you remember the trolley car when it was in action? We actually had a gentleman in the first uh, service it was, and I mean, clearly by his age, he could have been telling the truth. But I'm just going to see if any of you were old enough to know uh, about the trolley car. So there used to be a trolley car that ran up and down Broadway, and a lot of the families that um, that were living in the suburbs of the time, if you can imagine, the Alamo Heights was like at the outskirt of San Antonio at one time, um, and we're traveling in de- to downtown every Sunday morning. We're like, you know what? We have these families. Let's start a church. And uh, so Travis Park planted Alamo Heights United Methodist in September of 1909. It wasn't until September of 1910 that we actually formally took on United Methodist status and had our first worship service in a building that would be our church for a while. And so with that in mind, starting last September... There have been things, you might have seen some banners, some different stuff going on to celebrate the centennial of ministry for Alamo Heights United Methodist Church. And quite honestly, it's a big deal. Um, I mean, it's pretty cool that this church has been around and, uh, and serving Christ uh, for 100 years. So the reason I say this is because there will be events throughout uh, from now until September, and probably more and more and more as we get closer to September, celebrating uh, the centennial. We've already had a few. Uh, the next one that's coming up is uh, February 12th, uh, the Val- Centennial Valentine's Dinner. It is from 6 to 9 p.m., as you see behind me. Tickets are $15 uh, for the meal. I believe it will be in this room. I'm quite certain it will be. And they're on sale today. Now, now, in the parlor, 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 get your Valentine's Dinner tickets. tickets, tickets. Um, sorry, <clears throat> that was just fun. Uh, you could have done that. I know. Uh, John's like, I could have done that for you. Um, so back in the parlor... Um, there will be some people that can answer any questions that you might have about the Centennial Valentine's Dinner. That was cool. Can we do that for the whole sermon? I'm just going to give you a little when I need to make a point. Jesus. Um, so, all right, I've stalled. Is he here? Do we see him? No, negative. I should move on. The pattern is full. Okay. All right. So he's not here. There's not a big surprise. We used to have a baptism, and it would have fit more nicely in the middle than at the end. But that's okay. Whatever Brad wants. Uh, so we are in, we are studying the, the book of Matthew. And where I felt like God was leading us this year was into a place of um, consistency, if you will. We wanted to be consistent in what we were doing and, and to, to focus on one thing. And I, and I believe God kind of led me to the book of Matthew for whatever reason. I don't know. Uh, but here, this is where we find ourselves. And so for the last two weeks, we have been in Matthew chapter 2, just the last part of it, because I skipped all of the Christmas stories since we had just done that. And my ADD mind is way too busy to go back over something we had just done. So we are moving right along through chapter 2. And if you haven't been here... This is what happened really quickly. Matthew was a book that was written for Jews, by a Jew, to the Jews, to prove to the Jews that Jesus was the Jew they were looking for. It's a very Jewish book, is why I said it that way. Very Jewish. 
very Old Testament. It's set up to, to kind of showcase Jesus as Moses and so much more. You know, it's like he's trying to, Matthew's trying to tell the, the Jews that, okay, this Jesus guy, you've been looking for the Messiah. You've been looking for somebody kind of like Moses, but better. Here's your man. Um, and he goes through a lineage. He goes through the birth story, the birth narrative, all of those things, uh, the Magi. And then, and then the second part, I believe, of what Matthew uh, the gospel is trying to do is to is to say it is it's for the Jews. Jews, here's the guy you're looking for, but it's not just about you, because Christ didn't just come for the Jews. He came for the world to save the world, um, to save all humanity. And so, because of that, there's like this two part thing that, that Matthew is really heavily concentrating on the Jews and trying to get them to understand that he is Messiah that they are looking for. But at the same time, he's trying to let them know that it's open. To everyone. In the first two chapters, really, it kind of sets the stage for the rest of the gospel. It sets the stage of what Jesus' ministry is going to look like. Uh, Jesus goes, if you remember, into uh, exile with his family. They escape over into Egypt. And, and then he comes back into Israel, the second exodus, if you will, to bring us freedom from slavery. And it kind of sets up this whole, whole ministry for Christ. And then you get to Matthew chapter 3. And what you might recognize, if you've been following along with us in reading the book of Matthew, what happened to high school or like college or junior high or where's elementary school? I mean, because you go from Matthew chapter 2, they come back from Egypt. They hear that uh, this Herod, uh, Herod dude, Archelaus, is, is ruling over the area where they were. So they go to Nazareth, um, back to where they were from. Fulfills a lot of prophecies there. And then they get into Nazareth, and he's now 30. You turn the page, chapter 3, Jesus is 30. It's like, okay, wait a minute. He was like, okay, let's you know, be liberal. Or, he was four, maybe, when, they came, when, when last we left, chapter 2. Jesus is about four. And then you get to where he's, and I don't know if that's really the case, if he was four, but I'm just guessing, anywhere between two and six. We'll throw that in there. Here he is. Um, and then we get to 30. Bill will explain it to you later. I know it wasn't your fault either. <laughs> and, so, and then we get to the age 30. You're like, what happened in between? Has anybody ever wondered what was Jesus doing from the age 4, 5, 6 to 30? Only one person has a curious mind like me? I mean, that wasn't a rhetorical question. Okay, apparently I needed to do this with the 930 audience too. When I want your participation, I'm going to do this. I mean, seriously, I, I mean, I, I just look at the scriptures and stuff, and I have this mind that goes really fast in really weird places all the time. So I picture Jesus growing up and doing like, hey, dude, you want to race? I bet I can beat you. How about we race across this water? You go ahead and swim. You know, I mean, how awesome would that be? They're walking down the street. Here's a dead bird. Jesus is like, bam, bird gets up and flies away. You know, I mean, I don't know if it, no, really, nobody's ever thought that kind of stuff, that Jesus was like kind of cool, the cool kid in high school, you know, walking through the lockers and, you know, I don't know. But so, so, so that's just the way my mind works. Okay, we don't have any, anything that tells us what Jesus did during those years, but you can kind of extrapolate a little bit, extrapolate a little bit. Okay, he was the eldest son of a family. So in the Jewish life, that meant something. You had then certain duties to perform. You were expected to do certain things. You would have been expected to live your life a certain way. 
as a young Jewish boy, you would have been intensely studying the scriptures. You would have been just soaking up the Torah, soaking up the books of the Old Testament, as we call them, and just memorizing them and making them part of your life and who you are. You would have gone on to, to study under a rabbi until if you were qualified, if you were of the right level and, and been lear- learning more and more and more until one day that you, if you were at such a level that they set you out to be a rabbi yourself. Now, Jesus' family was, uh, were carpenters or tectons, and it's not necessarily what you think of. It's not like with wood and, and stuff like that. It was with stone and rocks. So he was more like a mason. And uh, you would, he probably would have been part of the family business. He would have learned that trade, known what to do with those things. Uh, Joseph, we never hear about again. If you remember, the first miracle is when Jesus and his mom go to this wedding. Where's Joseph? Well, I don't know, maybe he died a little bit earlier on and Jesus had to take kind of the familial head of his family. And so different things were happening. All of it, though, I believe was preparing him for the ministry that was about to come. Everything was shaping him, shaping him into the man that he needed to be, to be the man we needed him to be. So we get to Matthew chapter 3. And here comes one of the best, craziest characters in biblical history. John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, as some who refuse to use the term Baptist call him. So John the Baptist comes, and I love this guy. This guy is nuts. In those days, John the Baptist, I'm at uh, chapter 3, verse 1. If you've got your Bibles, open them up. Remember, as Daryl said, please bring your Bibles. We're going to have it on the screen, but you can't, like, write something on the screen. Otherwise, we'll get very angry. In those days, John the Baptist began preaching in the Judean wilderness. His message was, Turn from your sins, or repent, and turn to God, because the kingdom of heaven is near. Isaiah had spoken of John when he said, He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, Prepare a pathway for the Lord's coming. Make a straight road for him. John's clothes were woven from camel hair, and he wore a leather belt. His food was locusts and wild honey. People from Jerusalem and from every section of Judea and from all over the Jordan Valley went out to the wilderness to hear him preach. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to be baptized, he denounced them. You brood of snakes. I don't think he liked them. He exclaimed, who warned you to flee God's coming judgment? Prove by the way you live that you have really turned from your sins and have turned to God. Don't just say, we're safe. We're the descendants of Abraham. Can't you see John going, we're safe. We're the descendants of Abraham. You know, like making fun of them. But in Hebrew, obviously. That proves nothing. God can change these stones here into children of Abraham. Even now the act of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever your roots. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. John was a jolly fella. I mean, wow. What a message. What a message. If you're not producing fruit, you will be chopped and thrown into the fire. Have a nice day. First, a little something about John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist, if you look at his description, it says that he wore camel hair clothes, that he just was this crazy guy, lived in the wilderness, ate locusts and honey. Locusts, by the way, are not the bugs 
It's actually a, a seed, a little seed shoot thing pod from a, a carob tree or a carob, a tree. Um, so it wasn't like he was eating insects. He might have, I don't know, but it was more along the lines of those things. But here, here's this guy in the wilderness, and, and he's, I mean, funny looking. But when you read this description, a leather belt, wild hair, all this stuff, immediately a Jew would have hearkened back to Second Kings because they would have known their scripture. They would have known what God was telling them through the stories of the Old Testament. And in Second Kings, there is a description of Elijah. And Elijah was described as pretty much this. So we've shown a couple of clips from, um, from uh, this movie about Matthew. And I just wanted to show a very short one to show you their image of what John the Baptist looked like so you can just really have it sink in. ...in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent! Awesome. I just want to be very short so you get this image of this dude walking and, and then go, Repent! People were flooding to the river to go see this guy. Flooding to the river to go hear him preach. Repent for the kingdom of God is near. Why? Well, clearly God was with him. Clearly God had anointed his words. He was the prophet who was preparing the way for Jesus. And in fact, he was the first prophet to come along in like 400 years. The prophetic voice of Israel that they had become so accustomed to had grown silent. And in this great span of around 400 years, it was just quiet. And then all of a sudden, here comes this JTB on the scene. That's what his cool kids, you know, cool friends call him, JTV. He comes out into the wilderness and he has these weird practices and he says, repent for the kingdom of God is near. And then he hearkens back to Isaiah and he says, make a path for the Lord. Get ready. People get ready. There's a train coming. Change is happening. His job was to come before Christ and to tell people that Christ was coming. It is time to get your house in order because the king is coming to visit. So he stands out in the wilderness and all these people come to hear him because he's appointed by God. And what he is saying is from God. And and these people come out and he's like, repent because God is coming. And they repent of their sins and he dunks them in the river. And he brings them back up. And there's this image of water just cascading down someone, cleaning them, preparing them to accept God. It's such a beautiful image in this weird place by this weird guy. It's amazing who God sends sometimes to be his messengers. I've experienced that in my own life from various people that I would never have expected to be from God who show up on my doorstep. And I'm like... But here's this guy in the wilderness. And it must have been big for the Pharisees and Sadducees to catch wind and to to bother to come down to meet this John the Baptist. But they don't get the reception that they necessarily think they were going to get, do they? They they come up to the river and, and John immediately calls them out and says, You brood of vipers. You say that you're holy, but you're not. 
the Pharisees and the Sadducees are this religious elite group who claim this lineage back to Abraham so that we are much better than the rest of you people. And what John is saying is that doesn't mean a thing if you're not living your life for God. You can say all you want, but that means nothing if you're not doing anything about it. And basically what he says is, what is it for God to come through and to chop your roots and to say you are no longer a part of that Abraham line? These rocks right here, watch this, bam, new people. It's God. Of course he can do that. And so John's whole message, which is tied up in his condemnation of the Pharisees and Sadducees, is get ready because Jesus is coming. Repent. Ask for forgiveness. Check where you are in your life so that you are ready when Jesus comes back. This could very quickly and easily turn into a hellfire and brimstone sermon. Those of you that have come for any length of time know that that's not normally my style. But I think it was pretty clearly John the Baptist's. I think pretty clearly he was, you know, the modern day interpretation of this question would be, do you know where you're going if you die tonight? I think that's kind of a, I don't know, oftentimes misused and silly question. But here John the Baptist is basically saying this. Are you living your life in such a way that you are ready for the moment when Jesus comes? It's like this. Um, my parents are on their way uh, to our house as we speak. Uh, I called him. I called my mom before the service, and they were 20 minutes out, so they should, should be here by now. They're coming to stay for a few days, and um, we, we have two young children. And so periodically our house becomes messy. I don't understand it. Um, it's just like it's clean when we go to bed, and then it's not the next morning. It's like Corbin gets up at night and starts doing stuff. But we clean the house, and we get it straight and orderly and everything, and, and Jenna's kind of freaking out. She's like, we got to clean, you know, let's clean the bathrooms, do this. I'm like, no, it's my parents because they're my parents. I don't care. They're her in-laws. She does. You know, all of a sudden, if it were her parents coming over, she'd be like, eh, it's just them. But you know when you have that, has anybody ever had the pop-in from someone? Somebody just stops in and, and you just go, like, hey, how are you doing? And you're like, oh, that is so great to see you. Hold on just a moment. Or you let them into the entryway and just, wow, what's that over there? And you quickly start trying to clean up because you're like embarrassed, even though you thought your house was clean and you were living in it like it was just perfectly fine. But then all of a sudden somebody comes in and you're like, oh my gosh, how can we eat in a kitchen like this? You have these moments where you're not expecting somebody to arrive and you're like, whoa. John is saying, Jesus is coming. You don't know when he's going to knock on the door, so get your house clean. He's saying that you've got to make a road for God. You've got to prepare the way for Jesus Christ because he's coming. Now, John was talking about the first time. John was talking about the first time that Jesus would come. His words still ring true today, but it's just the second time. It's the second coming of Christ. Jesus Christ said, I will one day come back to take you to be with me in my father's house. One day Jesus Christ is going to come back. Are you ready is the question. 
Now look, accepting Jesus Christ into your life is the key. Accepting Jesus Christ, becoming a believer in Jesus Christ, accepting that gift of salvation that was earned for us on the cross, conquering sin and death. But once you do that, once you do that, as James says, if you really believe it, if you're truly living in your faith, then, then unless you are living in it and preparing for it, then you're, you should have a dead faith. Is it really a faith at all if you're not consistently pursuing Christ? If you're not consistently trying to clean your house for that moment when Jesus comes back? Now, look, I don't know when he's coming. You know, I don't know if he's coming. I've said this. I think every service during the Matthew now I've said this. This is quite funny. I don't know if he's coming right now. That's freaky. (laughs) That is... Not going to lie to you. I don't know if y'all heard that over there, but a big plane just went by. <laughs> Does Jesus ride Southwest? What happened? Because um, his bags would fly free. Um, so I don't know when he is going to come back. I don't know when Jesus will come back. I don't know if it will happen in my lifetime, my son and daughter's lifetime, their children's lifetime, whatever. It doesn't matter. Am I ready right now? If Jesus Christ came and said, Crocker, it's your time. I want you to come home with me. To my father's house. Man, every day there are moments when I have to listen to John's word and repent. I have to listen to the words of John and and get my house in order and start making sure that I am ready. There are moments every, every day, moment after moment in my life. There are times when I choose myself or the world over God and I have to say, whoa, what just happened? Forgive me, God, for this. Help me to move forward in, in your plan that I might be ready when you come. It is a day-by-day, moment-by-moment life to live your life as a son and daughter of God. I think that's what John the Baptist was talking about to the Pharisees. I don't care what you say, he said. It's how you live. So people get ready. Let us pray. Gracious and Heavenly Father, we thank You and praise You for loving us so greatly that You are willing to give Your life for us. God, we thank You for the freedom that comes with accepting that gift of salvation. And Lord, those of us who have accepted that gift, help us to not just leave it there, but to move forward in our relationships with You, to clean house, to prepare a way that when You come back, we are ready. Because let's face it, God, if we all begin to do that and to live our lives for you as disciples of Christ, then it's not just going to affect our life. It's going to affect the lives of the people around us and eventually the world. Help us, Father, to truly be your disciples. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.